The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media. When I was growing up, you never you thought of place women. Charlie's Angels hadn't even been uh, invented yet as a TV program, and the only angels I knew about were the ones that were in church. Investigations isn't just about conviction, it's about exoneration, or it's about finding the truth. But I'm so thankful that I did not have to see those crime scenes. Um, every one of the crime scenes that I came, that I worked, I still have visions of it in my head. It's funny to look back and see how we were viewed at that time. Never really looked at us as women. One of he was quoted in the newspaper, uh, along with their progressive thinking, they're all good-looking broads. So one of the guys in the class was uh, an artist. He drew a cartoon oh of the instructor holding my bra. I didn't, I didn't know what to do, so I just kind of sat there dumbfounded. But it was uh, interesting. It was a time when things were really changing to look at what victims really go through and to try to prosecute cases for the horrendous uh, things that they did to victims. You do what you can do and you do what you can for the people who are the families and the survivors. Olas Media presents Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert. This podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California, as well as beyond. The podcast also examines some of the most unique cases that we've seen and some of the unexpected endings. But today we're going to talk with uh, a detective that is perhaps one of the most well-known uh, from the 1970s and 80s here in Sacramento that handled many, many high-profile cases. And her name is Carol Daly. So welcome, Carol Daly. Thank you very much. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. So, Carol, let, let's just start off. Um, you know, I've known you for a long time. I probably met you mostly through cold cases because we started looking at some of the cold cases around 2001 or so. Yes. And you handled many of the perhaps highest profile cases. And, and we'll kind of get into a little bit of it, but, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the, obviously the most notorious was the East Area Rapist slash Golden State Killer, uh, the UC Davis Sweetheart Murders, which was John Riggins and Sabrina Gonzalez in 1980, mm -hmm. uh, the Richard Chase case, which we just did a podcast on um, recently. And then um, others that you want to mention that you would consider some of the ones that you remember to this day. Oh, um, I think one in particular was uh, Paul Miskaman case, uh, uh, a man who um, killed his wife in the middle of the night. Um, he was um, represented by Michael Sands, 
um, his uh, brother-in-law was actually a deputy on the department. And the outcome of that case through the investigation, and I was really privileged that Michael Sands let me be a, a very much a part of their investigation uh, of Paul Miskiman, uh, was that uh, he was found innocent by means of insanity. Only case that Michael Sands ever worked where he was able to get that defense. And I think it's quite rare to be able to get that. Um, but for me, um, it showed... Um, investigations isn't just about conviction, it's about exoneration, or it's about finding the truth. And um, so uh, that one very much played out that way. Um, another one was a gentleman, well, a gentleman, he was a parolee who was released from prison. And within 10 days, he uh, took a $3,000 bribe along with some cocaine to uh, kill a couple of people. And uh, so he, uh, that was also an interesting case in that he had a partner with him uh, by the name of uh, Howard Smith. Um, that one was interesting in that Smith, his partner, actually uh, became a kidnapped victim of Bruce Winlings, who forced him to go along on his crime spree. And so there were a lot of twists and turns, uh, but eventually uh, all the charges against Smith were dropped. Uh, but just uh, working closely with uh, Bruce Winling and um, working, um, going to court and the judge uh, saying that um, he was one of the most cold-hearted murderers that he had ever met. And of course, we know that since then, there are a ton of cases that people can be uh, typed as the most cold-blooded murderer uh, that anybody has ever met. So uh, those were a couple um, that really uh, stood out. Um, cases that maybe went unsolved were ones that you that never leave your mind and you think about. And uh, thankfully for DNA, um, a lot of those are, are being solved and justice is being brought forward. So part of the reason I wanted you on today, Carol, is because you had this incredible career. And I think what I find fascinating is that you were a trailblazer as a female in law enforcement. So I wanted to kind of just you know, walk the listeners through like, you know, what, what your experience was like, and, and when you started those kinds of things, and some of the challenges you faced and how you overcame those challenges, if that's okay. First of all, um, a question was always asked me, why did you go into law enforcement? Well, when I was growing up, you never you thought of police women. Charlie's Angels hadn't even been uh, invented yet yeah. as a TV program. And the only angels I knew about were the ones that were in church that we talked about. <laughs> and so actually, my lifetime goal as a youngster was to be a missionary nurse. And then, as we know, we all make decisions in our life that change our path. And um, moving to Sacramento, California, working in civil service, um, I was uh, in my second marriage to my husband, uh, now current husband, Ted Daly. And he was the one that actually uh, brought a flyer in uh, showing that they were uh, hiring female deputies. It was a separate classification, separate qualifications. We had to be two years older than the men who were being hired at the time. We had to be 23. And um, I looked at it and I thought um, I had worked with law enforcement because I had worked at the DA's office, uh, domestic um, uh, records division and I had worked for the I was a secretary to the coroner so I had met a lot of the uh, 
officers in law enforcement. And uh, but what really took me was that it was double the salary. The salary was $698 a month. And it was double what I was making as a secretary. And so uh, I uh, decided to go ahead and take the exam. But when you talk about trail, let me ask, let me ask you a quick question. What what year are we talking about? Did you 1968? 1968. Okay. okay. So when you talk about trailblazers, people actually forget that in 1947, at the age of 33, a lady by the name of Dorothy Newbill um, hired onto the sheriff's department. She was a stenographer, a clerk, a dispatcher, and a matron in the jail. And in 1958, Sheriff Cox swore her in as the first woman to ever be in law enforcement in the sheriff's department. And when I first met Dorothy, when I joined the department, uh, she was working full-time, mostly on missing person cases and working out of the office. So it wasn't until then September of 1963 that Alex uh, Cowan and Joyce Pierce were hired on as female deputies. And reading back through some of the newspaper clippings and uh, because it was always a big deal with women hiring on. And looking back, um, they were talking about for the first two years, the men wouldn't even talk to them. Um, Alex was then reassigned to detectives and uh, uh, was laughing about when she was assigned a case, if she had a male partner, they had to take separate cars and they couldn't ride in the same car together. And I remember early on in my career, I, we would get an assignment and two of us, we would get in our own cars and we would meet. And um, Alex was talking one day about going up to a door, uh, the officer was at the front door and she had pulled up and she was uh, walking up the sidewalk. And the lady said, who is that person that's following you? Uh, <laughs> because even when even when we were out, we were never thought of as deputies. Um, I, I remember going to events and I was always either the sheriff's secretary or, or somebody who was there just to take notes. And um, they just never really looked at us as women. So it was, was in 1968 when um, Sheriff Misterly decided that he wanted more women on the department. Um, and there were 36 women that took the exam at the time. Only eight of the women passed and he was going to hire all of them. And uh, one decided she didn't want to go into law enforcement and the other one was pregnant at the time. So there were just six of us that were hired. Um, and the newspaper clipping uh, headlines at the time is uh, the law's long arm may end in painted nails. Oh, and my goodness. It was really funny. Mr. Lee commented that uh, he hired the six women, wanted women on the force. He had 550 men working in the department at the time. And he hired women because of their progressive thinking. And, and that their follow through, because a lot of men would sign up and never go, you know, follow through with the test or anything. One of he was quoted in the newspaper and saying, and, uh, along with their progressive thinking, um, they're all good looking broads. And, oh, my goodness. And I thought, you know, it's so funny to look back and see how we were viewed at that time. And uh, he said they should be ready for rough treatment and tough language whenever they're working with the deputies. And now we had to be 23 years old. We had to be five foot four and we had to weigh at least 115 pounds. So Mr. Lee said in the newspaper, if, it, if any female is six foot plus wearing heels, She's too much of a girl to be a deputy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, sake. Wow. So it was uh, that was just the very beginning. But really, when you look at um, the groundbreaking and being a leader 
for me, my mentor was Alex Magnus. Uh, she took me under her wing. She had been uh, in the department, um, hired on in uh, 63, so almost five years prior to us coming on. And she just took me under her wing and she mentored me. We worked together uh, a lot when I was first assigned to detectives. She was the first one to go to homicide. She was the first one to go to patrol as a sergeant. Uh, and uh, was really uh, the driving force for women to have equal rights within the department. And um, at the time- Let me ask you, let me ask you a quick question, sorry. Um, when you went to the academy, you know, what, was there certain things physically different between men and women in terms of like the guns or the, the uniforms, those kinds of things? Well, uh, when we went to the academy, it was six weeks, eight hours a day. Uh, and our classroom was at the Gardner's building in McKinley Park. And uh, so uh, we uh, had no uniforms at the time. Uh, so when uh, the uniforms were finally uh, made for us, we were wearing the men's shirts that were tailored down. And we had a seamstress who was making skirts for us because we were wearing skirts, wearing high heels, carrying guns in our purses. Um, so um, we, we didn't have gun belts. We had to qualify the same as the men did, drawing a gun from our purse as they drew a gun from their hip. So it was a, really a completely uh, different time uh, for women. And it was, it was quite a while before women fought for their rights to be able to work in patrol so they could promote. Uh, matrons were handling the uh, female inmates in the jail. So we uh, weren't even assigned to the jail initially. Um, What's a matron? A matron is a classification of a woman who works in the jail to handle uh, female prisoners. Um, so they said, hey, we're doing the same thing the male deputies are doing in the jail. So we want equal pay and equal rights. Um, and so they were all sent through the academy. And that was the end of the matron classification. And they be all became female deputies. Um, so um, a lot of changes early on in the first few years, uh, uniform equipment, trying to find um, uh, safety vest with darts in them that would fit a woman's body, trying to get leather gear that was shaped to fit a woman's body. And um, uh, our first uniforms all had to be handmade by a seamstress. So uh, a lot of changes were made. Um, probably one of the biggest supporters that uh, we ever had at the time was a guy by the name of Randy Butler that owned Butler's uniforms here in Sacramento. And he really worked with the women. He believed that they belonged in law enforcement. And he was a great champion of making us look good uh, while we were working. Let me ask you this. At some point, so you joined the department in 68. At some point, um, did you go to the FBI Academy? Okay, so uh, maybe I need to go back just a little bit and tell you that uh, when I hired on sheriff, Mr. Lee was the sheriff. Okay, and uh, then in um, 1971, there was a big campaign pushed by Dwayne Lowe to become sheriff. And actually about 331 of the officers in the department were supporting Dwayne Lowe for sheriff. They thought it was time for a change. Um, and I was told, don't get involved in the campaign. And I thought, well, everybody else is. I will too. So um, there, uh, the primary in not in seventy one, uh, there was a runoff. Uh, neither one of them took enough votes to uh, to take office. So they had to uh, go to uh, the November runoff. 
So because Alex and myself were one of the 10 uh, that uh, were demoted. And so when Mr. Lee did not win. Why were you demoted? Uh, because we supported Dwayne Lowe in the primary. And so Mr. Lee, after, after the primary, said, okay, we're going to demote you. So he sent Alex and Joyce Pierce and myself to the courthouse and put us in a holding cell. And we sat there until January um, when Dwayne Lowe took office. He won the, the final election. The, a final election in November. And uh, when he took office in January, um, he promoted us back to detective and we went to our loan assignments. So from the time of the primary until uh, January of 72, when Dwayne Loke took office, we were in a holding cell. We were actually locked in. We sat there. We During the day? Yes, we, we did Christmas gifts, uh, ornaments. We worked on Afghans. Um, we, uh, we sat there and, and, and just chatted and had coffee. We had to uh, call for a male deputy to come and unlock the door if we needed to go to the bathroom. And so we just we were held in custody uh, for uh, that period of months until Dwayne Lowe took office and uh, put us back to the assignments that we had before. Uh, so, so that so was the three just, female, the three female deputies basically got punished because you supported yes, one candidate over yes, another. Okay. Yes. Um, so uh, then Dwayne Lowe took office and uh, right after Dwayne Lowe took office, his um, the secretary who had been there for years, Alma, um, was retiring and they didn't have a civil service list to fill her position. And so Dwayne said, just bring one of them female deputies in. They used to be secretaries. And so I happened to be close by. So I was picked to go back and be Dwayne Lowe's secretary uh, shortly after he took office. And um, so uh, then uh, I, I forget how long it was, a few months. And then uh, uh, Candy Ackler was hired to be his secretary. And so I went back to being a detective. Well, then Candy uh, went on maternity leave. And he said, just bring that female deputy back in. <laughs> I mean, it was always the female deputy, not Carol Daly, not anybody else. Right. And because yeah. I worked in the same building and I was close by. So I went back to being a sheriff's secretary again. And I didn't care. I was making the same amount of money. Gave me an opportunity to know a little bit more about how the department ran, you know, right. how to filter correspondence and, and do things. Uh, and then civil service said, hey, they got wind of it and said, you can't use a female deputy as your secretary. You're working her out of class. And uh, so I went back to being a detective. But I think just because of the flexibility, I really didn't care. The money was the same. You know, I, I right. didn't take a cut and pay. And I think um, the flexibility uh, that I had, um, it, it just opened a lot of doors for me. So in 1970, I think you told me before, 1975, mm -hmm. you went to the FBI Academy, right? Right. Yeah. Sheriff Lowe, such an uh, innovative sheriff. He wanted to be the first of everything. There'd only been two other women in California at that time who had ever been to the FBI Academy, probably less than 12 in the nation who had attended. And so he uh, nominated me and uh, I went to, I was interviewed by the uh, local FBI agent in charge of the Sacramento office. I had to go and be interviewed. And uh, during the interview, he looked at me and he said, you know, this is a class of um, 250 and there'll be 248 men and only two women in the class and you've been divorced. And so how do you think you're going to handle being away from your husband and around all those men for, for the next three months? And wow. I, I thought, 
what a question because I mean we'd never be able to ask a question like that today. Uh, but it right. was a time I just was caught so off guard, and I said, "Well, I don't see it as being a problem." Um, anyway, I did go, and um, it was uh, a, a three-month school in Quantico, Virginia, and uh, a great experience. Uh, but going as a um, deputy, a line. Uh, officer uh, was more or less unheard of. I mean, most everybody attending there were uh, executive staff, sheriffs, captains, chiefs, and uh, so it was a it was a good experience. Did you find um, while you were there, or you know, you kind of mentioned some of the the ways that women were treated, <laughs> but did you find uh, any experiences at the FBI Academy that you felt were looking back now? It's like it would never happen. And I think looking back, when you look at, um, you know, sexual harassment in uh, law enforcement or you look at bias towards women, um, um, we were more progressive in California. But when I went back to the FBI Academy, there were states, especially southern states, that felt women had no part in law enforcement. And I think even FBI thought there was no, no place for women in law enforcement. Um, so... Um, I had, uh, there was about a group of six guys that kind of took me under their wing and we were a study group and everything. But in one of the classes, um, the instructor was also a magician on the side. And my name was, last name started with D. And so I was always in the front row. And um, I remember the instructor got up in front and I'm the only female in the class. There's uh, two women in the class of uh, that 250 but we were never in the same class except for our homeroom class. And uh, the instructor got up in front and he said, um, he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, I could remove your bra in front of the class without you even knowing it. And oh I looked God. at him and I thought, oh my gosh, I was just, I was shocked. So one of the guys in the class was uh, an artist. So one of the things that I think you're most respected for is your, the way you did treat victims uh, of crime. So when, when the East Area Rapist slash Golden State Killer started kind of the reign of terror in Sacramento in 76 here, what was your role? When, I mean, you're the, on the homicide team. These are rapes. Um, at the time, we didn't, you know, we did not, you didn't have the link to the Maggiore murders. But what was your, you know, you're on the homicide team, but what's your assignment? Well, uh, my assignment on the homicide team, when I first moved to homicide, we were working all felony assaults. So we were working rape cases, we were working kidnap, we were working assault with a deadly weapon, and we were working attempt murder and homicides. Um, and it was um, sometime after I was in homicide that they decided they needed to put all of the sex crimes in one unit because a, a rape case would come in and it would be worked by in one unit or it was just whoever was free would pick up. Um, when I initially went to detectives, I was working every every rape case that came into the department. And then when I went to homicide, um, of course, the homicide cases took priority. And uh, so at the time I was, uh, I was back and forth. I was pulled in um, to uh, work a, a rape case and then I'd be on a homicide case. So it wasn't until um, uh, months later um, and almost within a year, um, these cases were going that a um, task force was formed and I was pulled to work nothing but 
great cases. But then I can tell you, I was still pulled back and forth uh, to uh, work some of the homicide scenes and uh, just because they needed personnel. Right. So um, kind of sticking with East Area Rapist, I mean, what was your what was your job in the in um, East Area Rapist slash Golden State Killer for the listeners? But what was your primary job? My primary job was to be there to uh, interview the victims, uh, to make sure that they got to the hospital for the examination, to just uh, look out for um, their uh, well-being, and uh, to uh, take care of them, to interview them. And the, the, the interviews were long. As, as you know, the East Area Rapist was in the home for sometimes two to three hours. And right. so there was a lot going on, and there was a lot of detail that needed to be uh, taken from the victims. So uh, my responsibility was almost solely to work with the victims, although I, I did do search warrants. I did travel out of town on other cases that had similar MOs to try to you know uh, eliminate those. Um, so I was sort of back and forth, but my primary focus was just to be with the victims. Okay. So over time, obviously the case went cold. Uh, you eventually retired from the sheriff's office, but did you stay? And we'll kind of go through that in a minute, but you know, did you stay connected? I mean, I know there was a lot of documentaries on the case, but did you stay connected with some of those victims over the years? I there were um, yes, yes, I did, um, and and sometimes long periods of time would go out, uh, by, and then you know we would uh, make a connection. Then when all of the documentaries started, you know, probably two or three years at least before um, D'Angelo was even identified, uh, we were brought back together uh, to work on the documentaries. And actually, it just seemed like I was the contact person. Media would call me and they say, "Would you would you talk to so and so and and see if they'd be willing to talk?" So I kind of helped coordinate and and I think that was very professional of the media that they didn't go out and reach out to a victim first that I was able to uh, talk with them and see are you willing to do this and some of them did not they wanted nothing to do with the media and others were very willing to step forward early on I remember that one of the victims who wanted to come forward and talk about her experience um, her voice was disguised she uh, was shielded uh, so nobody could see her face. Uh, she was so fearful that by speaking out, the East Area Rapist, because he had threatened to come back and kill them at some point. Uh, right. And then I look at uh, all of a sudden you have um, uh, Jane Carson Sandler, who right. is going forward, who writes her book um, about being a victim. And um, women were uh, slowly coming out and saying, it wasn't my fault. I have nothing right. to hide. And I think the support of the group, um, you know, uh, in knowing that there were others early on when these rapes occurred, I had um, gotten several of the uh, victims together and uh, did uh, kind of a, a come and meet session. But I also had Dr. John Coles, who was a psychologist with our department that did critical incident debriefing for our officers. He agreed to meet with them and talk with them and kind of help them sort through. And uh, so I found that that was uh, very helpful. Um, we did one session and then I know that Jane had other sessions at her house just individually, you know, with some of the victims. I tried to do the same thing for the male victims who were involved and uh, none of them wanted anything to do with it. It was, 
it was a very revealing time about how these crimes affect not only the female, but the male, because there were so many right. of the males who were there present during. And uh, so it was, it was a very difficult time uh, for uh, everybody in the community. Um, I know for sure you did one town hall because I've seen the footage, but was there more, you know, back taking the listeners back to the time frame, 76 to 78, 79, I mean, the community was pretty much up in arms about, you know, this person running around committing these crimes. How many, I mean, what was that like? I mean, as an investigator to have to try to to calm the community, I guess, in a way. Well, there was a lot of fear in the community and there were a lot of phone calls coming in, you know, what can I do to protect myself? And, uh, and there was also a lot of false rumors going around about the, what the rapist was doing. And so we felt, the sheriff felt the best way to, to handle that would be to have town hall meetings. And these meetings, yes, we had at least two. There were 600 to 900 people that showed up. There was a large venue. And I, I remember standing in front and I'm looking at all of the command staff who was sitting over to the side I thought, oh my goodness, what am I doing up here? Because uh, I'm kind of like low person on the totem pole. Uh, but actually, because I had the answers to the questions, because I had done so many of the interviews, and and uh, we also had um, a crime prevention specialist who was there to tell them what they could do to protect themselves. Um, and so it was twofold to let them know exactly what was going on, to listen to their questions, and then to tell them, you know, give them advice on how they could protect themselves. Um, because you remember what it was like in the community. Everybody was right. buying a gun, alarms were going off. We didn't have street lighting, we didn't have video cameras and things like we have now. Um, people were sleeping in shifts around the clock. They were barricading the doors uh, so right. nobody could get in. Um, and uh, we did a lot of um, uh, safety presentations um, uh, during that time to all kinds of service groups, uh, schools, hospitals, uh, any place where, you know, they would have group meetings. Uh, we were there to uh, give classes on how to protect yourself and not become a victim. So uh, a lot of teaching went on as well as, uh, and a lot of community service, yes. Right. So let's fast forward. 40 years or so to April of 2018 and just throw it out there. What, tell us about how you found out about the arrest of the Golden State Killer East Area Rapist. Oh, Sheriff Scott Jones uh, called me. Uh, I was in the car and um, he said, uh, Carol, he said, I just want you to know uh, we've just arrested the East Area Rapist. And I said, Oh, you've got to be kidding. Well, and I, and it was just something that came out because I wasn't expecting to hear anything like this. You know, I'm, I'm, right. I'm in a retired life and taking care of grandkids and things. And it was just such a shock. And uh, his response, and, and he would not have called the keys about that because we had never had a, a, he came up in the office after I had left. Um, and he said, no, in fact, his name is Joseph D'Angelo and he's in booking right now. And I said, oh, you've got to start calling the victims and let them know. Because I remember in 2001, when the DNA was matched with uh, the rapes here in Sacramento and homicides down and rapes in Southern California and all over California, um, the victims were not notified and they were, right. they were just taken by shock. Uh, so these victims still don't know who the suspect is. And they, now they know that there's a lot of uh, murders that have taken place and they're still feeling like they, 
could become a victim again. And so first thing he said was start calling. And then I think I talked to you and you said, hey, hold on. <laughs> so I did make a couple of phone calls and, and because you were doing a search warrant at the time. And so I think there was so much frenzy going on. But my main thing is I, I got up early in the morning and I started making phone calls and um, and I thought, OK, these are going to be quick. I'm going to call them and I'm going to say and I wasn't prepared for the reaction of uh, the crying and asking questions. And and I couldn't just brush them off. And right. so, but everybody was making phone calls. It wasn't just me. I know your department yeah. was the sheriff's department. Other agencies were making phone calls to the victims to let them know that announcement was coming out that the East Area Rapists had been arrested. Yeah, it was a pretty surreal moment, I think, for everybody. It, yes, it was. So let me fast, let me go, let me fast forward. So not, not from the arrest, but just to go back in time, you know, you do all these cases, you're doing homicides. Um, at some point you get promoted up, you know, to various, you're, you're a detective, but then you get promoted up. And you ultimately become the under sheriff, right? Yes. And under sheriff, just for the listeners, in, at least in Sacramento, is the number two. So you're the number appointed. two in the department. Yes. Appointed, and, and who who was the one that appointed you to to under sheriff? Sheriff Blanas appointed me to under sheriff. Okay. So, um, you know, before you got appointed to under sheriff, we, we talked a little bit about some of these high profile cases that you had. You know, sitting here today, what would you say, you know, as for me as a prosecutor for whatever, 30 something years, there's moments I'm never going to forget, right? There's moments of trial moments. There's moments of sitting with crime victims. There's moments um, in a courtroom, you know, for you as, as a detective, I mean, again, some of these cases that you've handled, Richard Chase, it's hard to even talk about what Richard Chase did. He's just, he's in a way, he's very much like Dahmer, right? Dahmer is, seems right. to be the most gory case right now that people are interested in. Then you have uh, what I call the UC Davis sweetheart murders, which is the kidnap murders of John Riggins and Sabrina Gonzalez, which is December of 1980, right? Yes. Um, you were one of the main investigators on that case, um, right? I was, yes, I, I, I processed the crime scene and um, um, sat through the autopsies. So when we're working homicide, um, you process a crime scene, but very much a part of your assignment is to be at the autopsy, to work with a pathologist, to give him all of the information that you have, and to get all of the information from him firsthand before his report is even done, so that you can feed it back, um, clues and things that maybe would have helped with the investigators who are in the field. So my main um, uh, assignment for that, other than a couple of follow-ups, was being at the crime scene and being um, at the autopsy. Um, when we had a homicide at that time, our whole detail would go, and everybody had uh, everybody had a job in collecting evidence, making notifications, uh, and a lot of times mine was um, doing the crime scenes uh, because everything had to be uh, recorded and detailed out. And on Regan's and Gonzalez, um, I, I very much remember when you when you're at a crime scene, it just never leaves your thoughts. 
and um, you you have these visions of um, seeing them thrown into the gulch. You, uh, I have visions of uh, the tapes uh, around their face and and um, um, how they died and uh, the horrificness of it. And and yet on the other hand, you look at the innocence of their pictures. And uh, there were students going to school, and um, it's hard to put your mind around how somebody could commit such a horrific killing. Uh, so yes, when you go to those crime scenes, and um, even though I worked Richard Chase, I was spared from having to be in those crime scenes. And I think sometimes God just protects us because I was already saturated with the East Area Rapist and what he was doing to the victims and not being able to identify who it was and working and sorting through the trauma of those horrific cases. And uh, then um, I uh, respond to uh, Richard Chase at the time that he was arrested. But I'm so thankful that I did not have to see those crime scenes. Um, every one of the crime scenes that I came, that I worked, I still have visions of it in my head. Um, but you do what you can do and you do what you can for the people who are the families and the survivors. And um, if it weren't for that, um, and there's a lot of law enforcement officers that, you know, couldn't work child abuse and they couldn't work right. uh, uh, rape cases and homicides. Um, but um, I always look at it not as to actually um, what happened, but how can you help people through this? And I, I think that was a saving grace. Well, there's no, there's no doubt about that because it's, it, you know, the human toll of crime, as I say, oftentimes is sometimes incomprehensible, you know, sitting here today. Okay. After this phenomenal career, what, you know, are there certain moments? Is there, you know, like for me, I have moments where something happened in a courtroom or, uh, you know, I remember very distinctly telling a, a the husband of a seven month pregnant lady who had been kidnapped, raped and murdered yes. in 1979. There's moments I, it just, um, it's never going to leave your soul in a way. So, I mean, for you, I mean, are there certain ones that really stand out? Well, yes. Um, first of all, going way back, to uh, when I first started investigating uh, child molest cases, um, there was a um, victim whose uh, father, uh, she was sent down to LA to visit with her father and uh, he was molesting her. Well, when we found out about it, the molest occurred in the LA jurisdiction. And so we couldn't really do anything about it, but he just happened to be up here uh, in within our jurisdiction when one of the molests occurred. And I remember talking to this uh, young girl, I think she was maybe seven or eight at the time. Um, and uh, I was going to have to take her to the hospital for the examination. And of course, uh, Emory, I, I mean, I'm not really all that experienced yet. And so right. I'm telling her, uh, look, it's not going to hurt. They're going to be, <laughs> they're going to be, you know, very gentle with you. Well, of course, when she went in for the examination, it was painful, and she screamed and she cried, and she oh. never wanted anything to do with me again. And so I remember writing her a letter and telling her. Thank you for opening my eyes and helping me to be a better investigator because through what I told her and what actually happened, and um, I just asked her forgiveness. And actually, uh, we became um, uh, friends 
Uh, and years later, uh, I, I knew about her wedding. I knew about her family starting. She stayed in touch with me. Uh, she ended up marrying uh, a deputy sheriff. Uh, and well. so uh, it was just, you have to humble yourself because we don't always have the right answers, but we learn from our mistakes in any career. And I think one of the other ones uh, that always stayed with me that I think about, if I had to say, when was I the most scared working a homicide case? There was a um, boyfriend, girlfriend who had been dealing drugs, and I guess they crossed up uh, the people who were selling or owed money or something. And they were down in the Delta, which, you know, is the southern part of Sacramento County where the rivers and everything are. Um, and they took him out and shot them both in the back of the head. So I'm called to the hospital down in Walnut Grove, I think it was, or somewhere down south. And it's a very dark, I mean, we had no street lights or anything. And I left the right. house and I'm driving down there and um, it's a scary place to get lost. And right. uh, I get to the hospital and um, Ray Biondi was the um, uh, lieutenant at the time. And he said, I want you to stay there um, and protect, you know, protect the family because we don't know if they're going to come back. If they know that one of them is alive, that they'll come back and try to kill her. And uh, so I'm sitting um, there in the waiting room with the mother and I'm thinking so much about what families go through because it isn't just the victim, it's the whole family. Uh, right. And um, so they had both been shot in the back of the head and uh, he succumbed to his uh, injuries, he died. And she was brought into, uh, well, they were both brought into ER and they shot her in the back of the head, but it was like a small caliber gun. And it went through the back of her head, hit her skull, skull and it slid around her skull and came out her cheek and she survived. Wow. But I, I think what is the most interesting, uh, her name was Sharina, I believe, um, is that her whole life changed after that. Um, and I'm always thinking about the support from family, the prayers that go out, uh, especially mothers for kids. Um, right. But anyway, her whole life turned around. She ended up doing missionary work on the streets in Hawaii uh, and reaching out to kids that were involved in drugs. And so for me, the fun part is always looking back to see how people recovered and how they went on with their life. And because you can get lost in all of the trauma that you saw. Um, right. But it's it's how people overcome. And uh, so I remember leaving the hospital and it was dark and uh, I'm looking all around to see if, if dope dealers are tailing me. And and um, and actually, I was a little bit nervous. And then I looked down, my my gas tank is almost empty. And I'm in the middle oh my of nowhere way back then. So I finally found a little gas station with a man that was still working and was able to fill up my car. I was so happy to get home that night. And that probably uh, stuck with me as being the most frightening case, uh, just because probably because I was all by myself. We're used to working with partners and not knowing what the situation was going to come to. Well, I just, uh, I've been in awe, Carol, of, of your your career because, you know, myself, perhaps as a woman, um, just to see someone that has, I mean, just listening to you, you have the most positive attitude about even, even in the most difficult of times when there was discrimination or there was sexual harassment. To me, what I've learned from you is you just looked at it like as another opportunity to overcome things and look at it in a very positive way. 
and look where you ended up. You you rise, you know, after starting it as a secretary, really, all the way up to the number two in the department. And you handled some of the most um, significant cases that Sacramento County saw over the years. Um, but, you know, as we kind of wrap it up, what, what would you say, you know, sitting here today, what's, what's your message, do you think, to folks that, whether it's women, whether it's people that are interested in law enforcement, whether it's crime victims, what do you think is the most compelling thing you would want folks to know? Well, I, I, I think for me, um, trying to figure out where you want to go in your path of life. And um, when I look back, I told you my initial uh, desire was to be a missionary nurse and go to Africa. <laughs> that I don't yeah. pick the company or uh, the country where I was going to go. But um, I think um, having... Um, for me, it was my relationship with God and just being where he wanted me to be. And, and so that, uh, to me, has been the most important aspect of my career. But for anybody, uh, just um, what is it you want to do? I've talked to so many people who are unhappy. And I say, can you, can you move? Can you change assignments? You know, uh, is there something else that you can do? And I talked to people who just uh, had a dead-end career and uh, weren't happy at all. And then... I, I have a very close friend who was a clerical worker her whole life. And uh, we were together and she said, um, uh, she, she was talking about, you know, my career. And I said, uh, Joanne, I would give anything to have a, a department full of employees like you. You're positive. You show up to work every day. You do your job. And it, without people like you, departments can't run. And so it's how you see yourself. And so if you can see yourself, um, I've always uh, believed that I needed to support the person that I work for. And uh, and it just it worked for me. But um, having joy uh, in your heart within yourself, regardless of what you're doing, I think is key. Right. Yeah, no doubt about that. Well, yeah. I just want to, you know, from someone that didn't have the pleasure of working with you when you were in the, the crux of your career, uh, I just want to thank you for what you did back then. And then I fast forward to all of these cases that you then got subpoenas on, that you then came to court and testify, um, uh, you know, and even like with, the, with Joseph D'Angelo, your commitment to crime victims long since you retired has been truly extraordinary, Carol. So I just, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you've done for this community. And, um, you know, with that, I, I want to say thank you for joining us today and sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, uh, Emery. I just admire you and uh, I, I, I love following where you're going uh, in your next step in your career. And I hope to be a part of it because I hope you'll solve some of those cases that still haunt me. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm sure there's going to be more cases to be solved. But uh, um, for the listeners out there, um, I hope you keep listening to these podcasts. You can find us on InsideCrimeFiles.com and listen to more about the true consequences of crime and the innovation and inspiration that comes out of these cases. So I just thank you all. Olas Media presents Inside the Crime Files. Olas Media.